because I've given that 40 question survey to my 100 students or 150 students. That ends up being like what? Six. I mean, we're English teachers. Yeah, you're never going to 6,000 questions. You're not yeah. going to read them. And yeah, it might take them more to fill it up. And it's like, oh, you know, they'll spend 20 minutes filling out all these answers on this survey. Mm-hmm. Now, if you do that and you read through all of them, more power to you. I know I don't have the time to do that. There's things I want to prioritize uh, elsewhere. a conversation about teaching. My name is Jim Mayers. And I'm Marcus Luther. Uh, so before we get started, some reminders about the show. This is an independent, listener-supported podcast. The goal of the show is to connect with a passionate, diverse group of educators to bring helpful analysis and collaboration to support folks in the classroom. Most importantly, the show is about saying thank you to all the teachers out there, past, present, and future, who understand their classroom practice through a lens of social justice and change. Nobody knows better than folks who work in schools what's at stake for students and communities right now, and we want to keep saying thank you and encourage you to keep up the good work. If this is your first time listening, welcome. We'd love to hear from you on social media at The Broken Copier, and you can subscribe to episodes and other writing at thebrokencopier.substack.com. If you'd like to support, we'd love for you to rate and review the podcast wherever you stream or to just text your friends a, a link to an episode so they can tune in as well. And with that, uh, Marcus, you, we have a game. I, I haven't, I've seen minimal prep on this, but I'm going to turn over to you. You say you have a game that you want to play. So I'm excited for it. Yeah. And, you know, every once in a while we like to gamify our classrooms. So let's just gamify our podcast a little bit. Uh, and the good thing is I'm going to be the one asking the questions and all the pressures on you, Jim. So uh, hopefully that breath, you know, sense of relief for you. But the big thing for today is we want to talk about strategies that teachers employ in that first week, first couple of weeks of school and just get your take on them with really like quick boom, boom, boom. But before we do all of those takes and those kind of like those hot takes, I should say, uh, I just want to ask you because you have students coming tomorrow. Where's your mindset right now? In one word, what is the word that is on your mind knowing that you have students walking into your building tomorrow? Um, I'm excited. I'm ready. I mean, I feel like, I, yeah, definitely excited is the, is the best word. We, so we do a ninth grade orientation. Um, the, only, the only kids who are going to come in for classes tomorrow are ninth graders. Everyone else starts on Thursday. Uh, we're recording this on Tuesday. And so I, 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 we have an advisory structure in my school too. Uh, so I do have a group of eight freshmen who, I, who are in my advisory. Um, and our advisories are grades nine through 12. So I'm going to meet my freshman advisees tomorrow and they're going to attend their first classes. But we have normally we meet in advisory only once a day, but uh, the next few days we're going to meet multiple times a day. And we have a lot of like team builders and icebreakers and things like that. Um, So I don't know. I'm just excited. I'm ready. I know that it's not going to be perfect and I'm not, you know, a hundred percent there with like every, you know, T crossed and I dotted and things like that. But I I'm at this point just ready to get started and adjust as necessary. So that's where I'm at. 
Awesome. Well, best wishes to you. I am jealous in a little bit because I that feeling that you're probably holding right now is I am so excited for it, but I have so much planning to do in the next couple of weeks before I'm in that moment. So I am yeah. not jealous in that mindset. Sure. But before we get to the game, I did want to respond to the last episode. Uh, you and Sam had an incredible conversation uh, and ended with some takes about jeans. I appreciated yeah. Sam's takes. Uh, they did Made, made some great points, but I also don't want to leave the case settled. So if it's okay, okay I would like to make a little bit of a, a, a counterattack in okay. the most respectful way possible to the points made. And then I'll let you respond, of course, because I don't really think you gave your take that well. So okay. here's, right. here's my case. Uh, I think a lot of if my former students, I like to imagine all former students listening to this podcast and sharing it with everyone else. Uh, they'd be surprised that Ty wearing Mr. Luther uh, back then would be making this point, but I kind of think it's ridiculous to be concerned about teachers wearing jeans at this point. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm going to admit, I was I dressed formally early on, mainly because I didn't want anyone coming into my room to be confused who was the high school senior and who was the just out of college new teacher. And I think there is some pragmatism in that. But I also think there's this surface level signaling that goes into professional dress with teachers and the expectations around it, this idea that if I dress formally, I must be an invested professional teacher. And looking back, I realized just how surface level that is. Like, and you know what else? It's also a lot easier if you are an administrator, if you're a school board, because this was the case back in Arkansas in one of my schools, where you make a big show of all our teachers are dressed professional, walk in the hallways without actually taking the time to go into their classrooms and support them in being professional and invested in their classrooms. So I think it's like this, like this out. It's like, oh, I can just see what you're wearing and know how good of a teacher you are. One, that's incredibly controlling, just like most dress codes, in my opinion. And two, it is very surface level and gets away from the actual heart of supporting teachers. We talk a lot about supporting teachers on this podcast. And I think just at this point in my career, stop caring about jeans. Let teachers wear what they need to do to show up best for students. That's my hot take. Go for it. Okay. Um, so let's just, let me just clarify you. Do you wear jeans or what? What's going on? I wear jeans on Fridays uh, when it's uh, most people wear jeans. I also don't find jeans comfortable to wear personally. I think the difference okay. between slacks and jeans is overrated in that sense. But uh, I think in terms of what people wear, as teachers, like we're not showing up in like a tank top and basketball shorts. Like I, I just think this distinction around jeans gets way more bluster than it's deserved. I, I mean, I agree with that. I wear jeans too. Uh, I, I mostly pretty exclusively wear jeans on Fridays. Um, if we have like a field trip or something and I want to wear jeans that, that day, then I'll wear them. Um, I usually still, I, I, th I think I just, I think I agree with you. I don't really have a hot, I just mostly think that the debate is silly, but it's like, it's a funny thing because on teacher Twitter, like people just seem to have such strong feelings about wearing jeans. And I, and I would say that like the really strong feelings come from a place. It's not about the jeans, right? Like it's, it's about the overall level of professionalism and respect that, uh, is afforded to teachers. And I think the jeans debate is like a, a silly, like flashpoint where, where 
teachers are called unprofessional by administrators and they're not unprofessional and they know that, and they're skilled and confident and able to do their jobs, even if they're wearing jeans. And so I think, yeah, I mean, and to Sam's point, like they said that they were fine with jeans. Like they, you know, it, uh, they, Sam was saying, look, it's, I'm a principal at my school and, you know, they didn't offer a very like specific take. They were just like, well, look, if jeans is in service of your classroom culture and authenticity and everything, go for it. But in our organization, we don't wear jeans and that's the culture that we've established. Okay. That's, that's totally fine. So I don't know. I think it really, my, my take on it is it comes back to, to me, it just comes back to classroom culture and relationships with students. If they trust you and if they know what you're doing is in their best interest, then yeah, like, of course, they're not going to mind if you wear jeans. Um, yeah, I think that's my take on it. You can wear jeans if you want. Well, thank you. I appreciate the permission. And you're, you're 100% correct. Like, listening back, like Sam made that point, And I was more responding to all of the anti-jeans firebrands out there online, uh, calling teachers horrible teachers for the choice of denim that they bring into the classroom. And there is that. And those people should be uh, shushed on Twitter and elsewhere. So, yeah. Or maybe they should just have to wear jeans too. Yeah, they can Uh, wear jeans too. Okay. So let's, let's begin the game. Are you ready? I'm ready. Let's do it. Okay. So I've talked about this before, but uh, my first encounter with Jim, we were not, we did not enter the profession equally in my mind. Like I entered the profession one year after Jim. So that meant Jim was this glorified second year, all knowing wise teacher who could impart knowledge on all us new English teachers uh, around the state in our program. So when I would listen to Jim talk, like he was talking from a mountain, speaking down (laughs) and pouring forth well-invested, well-earned wisdom to all of us newbies uh, who are desperate. Eight months of wisdom, yeah. So I figured that we would play a game called wise or unwise with Jim. So what will happen is I'm going to offer a piece of advice about what teachers should do the first week of school with their students. And my push is going to be twofold. Number one, you get one minute to make your case. So as both of us are long-winded English teachers, that'll hold both of us accountable. And two, you don't get to say it depends. You got to either say it's a Mm -hmm. wise piece of advice or it's unwise. No, it depends on the context, the situation. If it's 50.1% wise, you're saying wise. So we're going to go through seven strategies. And of course, if you're listening to this and you disagree with Jim, respectfully, please disagree online, disagree, you know, send us your thoughts and comments. I really want to put him out there. Yeah. Tweet at me and let others critique his positions because well, that's I, what a good teacher does. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. you ready? Yeah. I, I, one quick note here. I do play, I do play in my class uh, for AP Lang. I play, I like to play on the fence where I, it's a similar thing and students are not allowed to sit on the fence. They have to take a position, yes or no. It's, it's great. So I'm ready to play the game. Awesome. So this is what we call justice. So here we go. Uh, round one, uh, piece of advice, wise or unwise. Build community with icebreakers. Lots of icebreakers right away. 
Wise or unwise, Jim? I say this is wise because icebreakers, I think the knock against icebreakers is that they're like uh, either boring or flat or inauthentic or, you know, those types of things. But to me, the reality is it, the reason that it's wise is because if you are in any new social situation and learning is a social endeavor, if you introduce a level of structure and um, sort of obligation to participate in like a set of rules, it, it's not really about what the rules are, right? Like icebreakers are not about following necessarily to me, the rules of the game. It's, it's about getting to know you, right? So you have, sometimes you have students who are more extroverted and may overshare and like may dominate the conversation. You have other students who are introverted and may opt out and not want to do it but we there does need to be like a a level to me of agreed upon collaboration and getting to know you and relationship building and the structure i would say that an icebreaker offers i've got a bunch of icebreakers planned for tomorrow that i'm going to use and to me it's about inviting it's it's about creating like a permission structure and a set of guidelines for people to build relationships and that to me that's what the point of the icebreaker is and the yeah i'm not saying it depends but the caveat that i would offer is like understand that it's not about the icebreaker right like it, it it's not about necessarily winning or being the best or being the most clever if you understand if you have an authentic icebreaker um you should use it because it will, it will create a shared experience and people, it just, it's about building relationships. So I, I'd say icebreakers are wise. Okay. Uh, and I think the other caveat that I've heard online from a lot of teachers who do not like icebreakers uh, on Twitter sphere, at least, is that what happens if a kid is going through class after class, icebreaker after icebreaker, and they are, <coughs> sorry, I, they are, not enjoying it like that's their opening to school do you have any follow-up to that like is that fair to put that student in that situation i think yeah i mean i yeah that's a great point well one i think that the icebreaker should be varied uh and teams you know my school shared a list of like 50 icebreakers and people are all doing different things uh, so hopefully there's a good amount of variety for the student throughout the course of the day. And the other thing that I would say about icebreakers is they really, they should be short, right? Like they shouldn't necessarily take up the whole class period. Uh, to me, an icebreaker, a long icebreaker would be like 15, 20 minutes tops, right? So you do the icebreaker, you have a laugh, and then you would pivot into more meaningful content or framing, you know, tomorrow when I'm running the advisory stuff, we have icebreakers planned at the very beginning, but it's also a lot of like, here are the policies at Brook High School, and this is why, and this is what advised. So it's a lot of like serious stuff and it's, yeah. So I would say it is a good point and hopefully schools are strategic around not making, you know, not making kids play two truths and a lie for six hours straight, but, um, I, I, I'm a, I'm an icebreaker fan. I, I would stand by them. Yeah. And I, if you've been in my classroom starting the year, we're going to do a lot of collaborative activities. I don't necessarily use the word icebreaker, but I'm sure it would get pegged as that by many. And I think my other follow-up would be don't do anything that 
makes your makes you seem or makes you feel inauthentic to your students to start off. And I think I have seen teachers roll in with all sorts of icebreaker energy bouncing off the walls. And then two weeks later, it's completely gone. And the Mm -hmm. students are like, what was that first week about? So be careful about having too much disparity between the energy you bring week one and what you can sustain the rest of the year. That'd be my other parting thought. But that's enough time on this. We're going to round two. So round two, wiser unwise. Start with your students in assigned seats. Jim, is that a wise or unwise decision to begin the year as a teacher? I I go wise on this too. I think I I have seating charts uh, that are projected on the board. To me, I think the reason the reason why I think it's wise is because the less and this is actually my school doesn't do school uniforms, but I personally am actually a fan of school uniforms because the the less sort of anxiety or calculation that you like that you introduce for students to make the better, especially to me in the beginning of the year, dress codes are aside, but I see them as, or excuse me, uniforms are aside. I see them as like a similar thing, right? Because if as a high school student, you have a lot of sort of anxiety, you have stimulus overload, you're getting used to a new schedule. You're trying to figure out how to navigate your way around the building if you go into a classroom where there isn't a seating chart, the immediate calculus, we know for, we know for sure that high school students, we've seen this in psychological studies, like high school students are hyper aware, inaccurately aware in many cases of what other people think about them, right? And so it's like, you don't necessarily want them walking into your room and having them being, to me, the risk of not having a seating chart would be basically like, oh, am I sitting, am I sitting next to the popular kids? Am I sitting, am I sitting in the back? Am I, there's like all of this like mental energy and expenditure that uh, is just not helpful and can get in the way. And actually to me can, could cause anxiety about like who you are sitting with. Am I sitting with my friends? Am I not sitting with my friends? All that kind of stuff. And if you can just eliminate that and say, nope, this is where you're sitting. Welcome. Take a seat. Um, eventually I will move my, my classrooms over the, you know, I would say probably two, three, three weeks or so. Like I kind of just get rid of the seating charts and eventually kids will sort of sit where they want to sit. And it's like not that big of a deal, but at the start, if you provide that structure, um, I think it's just helpful for students to not have to, it's just, it just, to me, it just removes a variable that they have to think about and have to, have to worry about. Um, so I would say wise for seating charts first day. Fair enough. I'm not even going to play devil's advocate on this one because I'm a hundred percent wise on this and I'm a seating chart all year person, uh, very yeah. intentionally to build community because I think students need to sit with students. They wouldn't choose to, but on the teacher side, pragmatically, my advice it is a lot easier to get to know student names if they are in an assigned seats. You have the mm-hmm. chart on your clipboard. That process that for some can take weeks to figure out, you, by like day two or three, you can have all the names down and you can become better at building those relationships. So I am yeah. highly in favor of assigned seats for lots of reasons, but that uh, what you quick, articulated. Yeah, a quick point on this. In the times when I, like later on in the year, if I, once the seating chart is sort of not a thing anymore, 
students really rarely move around. Like once they, once they pick their seat, it's like, oh, this is my seat. Uh, so, you know, even later in the year when there isn't really a seating chart and they can just kind of filter in. And, and I would say this is kind of unique also to maybe 11th and 12th graders who are a little bit older. But yeah, I think they they don't want to. Like when I was in high school, we didn't have seating charts, but I sat in the same seat every day because that was my period. That was my seat in, you know, bio or math or whatever it was. That was my seat. So that's where I went. Okay. Fair enough. Uh, enough time on this topic. Let's keep moving. Uh, so advice number three, dive into your content day one. So start teaching your content right away. Wise or unwise, Jim? Oh, man. Um, I'm saying unwise on this. There are There's like a whole bunch of caveats that automatically come to mind but i would say the reason that i say unwise is i don't it's it's i i don't want necessarily like i i introduce like structures right like this is the way that we annotate this is the way that we read i'm modeling from day one i'm modeling like entry procedures and routines uh and or like, this is how the binder should look. And this is how we take notes and all that kind of stuff. But I don't really think it's that helpful necessarily. And, and this is what I'm saying unwise because of the word content. Like, I don't know on day one that like, you necessarily, you necessarily need to be like, introducing new knowledge that students are going to like, feel accountable to on a quiz or a test. I'm not opposed to that. If you if you want to do that, uh, I would say go for it. But to me, really, especially in the first like two days that are very critical to the start of the year, it really you should choose culture over content. Ah, I do struggle with it because to me, those things really aren't mutually exclusive. Like I, I think the problem is when people treat them as exclu as as mutually exclusive. It's like oh, I'm either teaching English or science or math, or I'm relationship building. And to me, the ideal is that you are actually building community and relationships through the experience of learning the content. But the re yeah, the reason that I say unwise is that it's more important to like build up routines and structures and systems and, you know, build an environment where students can feel like they know each other and that they appreciate one another. Um, you know, I'm not going to like, when I, I teach AP Lang, my mind, I, I'm probably over time here at this point, but I teach AP Lang and like, I'm not introducing anything about rhetorical analysis and what space cat means and how to deconstruct a text. I'm not getting into that until, uh, you know, the, the fourth day of class. Um, yeah, I say unwise, like focus on, focus on routines, habits, systems, getting students invested in the overall goals and scope of the class um, before you start delving into what I think most people think of as content. Yeah. I uh, appreciate that. Uh, disagree in some ways, at least in the scope of us being English teachers, I think that, and I think you made a really good point 
that it is very easy to blend content and relationship building with our content as English teachers in terms of narrative writing. Uh, and even though like AP Lit students, they walk in and I've got in the station of the Metro on the board, a two line poem. And we spend the first 30 minutes just diving into that and really unpacking mm -hmm. it and setting like the mindsets that they will need for the rest. Uh, we don't, I mean, we would not go and do space cats or whatever, you know, Astro, you know, astronomy that you're apparently teaching. Yeah, we're big on class. zodiac science. Uh, yeah, sure. So yeah, I'm a dog person anyway. But <laughs> uh, my point being that I do think that there is a place that it's an easier place with English, uh, whether it's narrative writing, etc., to build relationships. But you wouldn't. I think I agree with you though that you wouldn't want to displace the things that you need, especially in terms of setting culture within your classroom for content. But if you can make it work. It's kind of nice because I love when they're going in, you know, over syllabi and expectations and all the things apparently they're doing in Jim's class all day. Mm -hmm. And then they show up to my room and we're ta attacking a poem. It's kind of a fun change of pace uh, that I like to throw at them. But fair enough. So we'll let that stand. And let's go to this next point because I think we're going to disagree on this then. Okay. Uh, wise or unwise, go over the syllabus day one. Jim, your take. I mean, it's hard for me to not say wise because that's exactly what my plan is for Thursday. It also is depending on like what we mean by, I'm going to say wise on this um, because I do have a document that outlines in pretty specific detail. Like this is, this is how I want like the bathroom to look. And this is how I want like uh homework to look and this, you know, like, I outline very clearly in writing what I think the, you know, the habits and the routines and how I want students to engage within the actual content, but I'm not like, and so I give them that written document for sure. And I also have slides that are highlighting key information that I think are really, really important that I want students to have heard from me. Uh, as the teacher, this is what's important. This is what the class is about. This is how I think about, you know, your growth as a writer, um, as opposed to like, you know, I think it's for me for like, as an example, I do plan to talk a little bit about on the first day. All right, this is an AP class. Yes, we have an AP test. This is basically what I think about, um, how you should think about your scores and how I want you to be thinking about your growth as a writer, which is disconnected from like the ultimate score on that you may earn on the AP test. Um, so that is all written down and it is in uh, a document that, and I have like a letter that I've written and things like that, but I'm not like, I'm not like reading it carefully and there's not like a quiz or a scavenger hunt, but it's just like, here's a bunch of information. Here's what I think is important. Um, keep it in your binder. I'll, when we're in conferences, we can talk through things if you have questions. So I, I'm going wise on the syllabus because that's how I use it. So I'll, I'll, I'll split your answer a little bit and agree with it's important to have the syllabus ready and available day one, especially if they're getting it in all their other classes. You want to make sure you're providing it uh, because you should have it done in that point. Uh, and I think probably we agree that you're not spending the class period reading through it point by point. 
uh, which happens. I remember when I was in school, there were those classes mm-hmm. that that's how they began. And I get that sometimes that's the school policy. So I'm not criticizing teachers if that's the school policy. But uh, something, you know what? I, I criticize Teach for America quite often over the last few months on this podcast. Uh, something that I really appreciate that Teach for America instilled in me was this like unit zero concept of mm. saying, what are the procedures and systems and cultural values that you want in your classroom? And how can you backwards plan from your vision of what those will look like at the end of unit, the first unit and teach them over time. So I map out along with my normal standards of unit one, uh, Hey, this is the system I'm going to teach today. And cause I'm also going to teach, we're gonna talk about this value and core belief of our classroom. And these are the parts of our syllabus and our classroom expectations that fall under that window. And I'm going to spread those out over time so we can actually model them. We can spend time with them instead of just rushing through them slide by slide. I'm not saying that's what you're doing by any means. I know Thursday is coming fast for you, Uh, but I I really try to pace myself so that they fall under an authentic value within our classroom system. But I, I do think this is an interesting topic because I think it is kind of the cliche thing, way to start the year for so many teachers, not you or not me, but I do know a lot of teachers start off with that. Oh, we're just going to read through the syllabus, figure out where the kids want to sit, and then day two will begin. And I, I just don't think that's the best way to start. And that's just my personal bias responses before I move on. I, I, I'm Yeah, I'm with you. And a distinction I would draw, right? Like when we use the word syllabus, a lot of the times – it's meant to, you know, seem and feel like a like what you would expect from syllabus week in college. A college syllabus is way different than like what high school teachers use, right? Like a college syllabus was like, oh, this actually is, these are all the deadlines for all your papers. These are all your readings that we're going to have to do. This is the reading calendar for the whole semester which in college is great because, you know, you're not meeting every day and, and you should be held, you know, that type of pacing is really important and helpful, I think, for a college student. But I think I, I saw it. I don't know who made this point, but it seemed like they were a college professor. They made, they made, this, they made this point online. Um, they were like, I, I, don't, I don't like being nailed down to a syllabus in college, the beginning, I haven't even met the students. And if you, and you, in a college classroom, you don't, you have to, like, you're very prescriptive. The syllabus, to me, the, the uh, pitfall of the syllabus is how prescriptive they can be. Um, And that really happens a lot in college classrooms. And in a high school, when we use the word syllabus, a lot of the times it's just, it's a document that describes culture and expectations and how you engage and, there's there's not really much content in my quote unquote syllabus beyond a written document that's like this is why I really believe the class is important. Yeah, I agree. I think in terms of content, I actually just hyperlink to like my unit plans for yeah. the semester and don't put it on. I, I only do front and back, like one page for the syllabus because it's just course policies, expectations. The something that I would recommend looking into if you're a teacher and you're like me and you've still got a couple weeks to go, especially uh, something I've started doing is for the most important points and really the values aligned points, whether it's about like late penalties, like, which I don't have uh, and things like that, 
I actually record with Screencastify my explanation that I would give to students in the classroom and hyperlink it on the Google Doc so that if there was parents or families who are curious about the why behind the policies, there's actually a video of me talking. And not many people watch through all those videos, but they're there. It also Mm -hmm. is a good practice and rehearsal before I have that conversation with students. So uh, I've started doing that and having a pretty hyperlinked uh, syllabus, so to speak. Uh, And that's something that I like. And it might be something that you could look into if you were curious about that. Love it. So let's go to, we got three more. How are you doing pace wise? Good, good. Yeah, I feel like I'm holding my own here. Yeah, I know this is an audio uh, format, but those of you listening, you don't get to see the the sweat dropping off of Jim's forehead. He is it's nervous hot. going into these last few. It's, yeah, it's hot here in Boston. Okay, we'll take that. And I had so, to turn my I turned my fan off so that it doesn't get picked up on the podcast. So it's extra hot. <laughs> I am in the same boat, surprisingly, in the Pacific Northwest. So let's start with this. Is a classic one that I've probably given to people too. So I don't. I'm curious where you're going to stand on this one. Wise or unwise. Start super strict with high expectations because it's so much harder to go back and raise expectations later on. I mean, my instinct, my gut reaction to this is unwise. Like, I think that your expect you should be clear on your expectations from the start, right? Like, the bar is the bar, and this is what exemplar writing looks like, this is what we're expecting. I think a lot of the times when people are like, oh, you need to start really, I've heard that like terrible advice around like, oh, don't smile within the first month or something. Like I smile. I have like a whole like stand-up comedy routine planned for not really stand-up comedy, but it's, it's like a whole thing that's meant to be actually really funny for my AP seminar students where they are, well, I'll just sit like on Friday, the second day of class, I'm going to pretend, literally pretend to be, um, a really adamant subscriber to the birds aren't real conspiracy theory and recruit them into the birds aren't real conspiracy theory. And the whole point of that is to set up like a framework for how, how do you, and the birds aren't, it's a satirical for people who don't know birds aren't real is a satirical conspiracy theory. That's meant to like mock other conspiracy theories and they call themselves like bird truthers and uh, things like that. So my my literally on the second day my tone and the and the way that i'm approaching the class is honestly very silly but it it is also very serious and that's because i know the purpose of that i know why i'm doing that is to set them up the next day for a framework of like okay how do you engage with information that's really not credible where do you where do you draw the line how do you believe things how do you doubt things but the expectations to me are very clear from the start. So the problematic statement, the, the problem that I have with like the idea behind the statement is that you would change the expectations as the year progresses, right? Like I think if you are clear on the goalposts, then you should be clear on the goalposts from day one. And when students meet them, you celebrate them. And when students and you don't want to have moving goalposts for students uh, as the year progresses. You can, you can read different texts and perhaps more complex texts as the year goes on, but I don't know. I think that the whole idea of like starting stricter than you actually are 
is misguided. Agree with that one. So we're in lockstep on some of these, which is nice. Uh, I think the authenticity test comes in, like be yourself what you plan on being. That means don't be like looser and cool early on. I mean, do your bird conspiracy thing. Go for it. Yeah, it's going to be fun. But uh, anyhow, and by the way, if you're listening to this podcast and you're into that, like there are plenty of podcasts on the bird truthers. But uh, I would just add that you don't build relationships day one, but you can ruin them or at least set them back several paces and I've made this mistake. So I'm speaking from experience with humility that set high expectations the way that you would normally, not more than is, you know, not inauthentically. But also if you have a student who comes in and they're not following those expectations the way that you want them to, don't send them out of the room day one. Like mm-hmm. get to know that student more. Talk to your people in your school. Like what do I need to know about the student? Try to connect with them individually day one is a time to set expectations for the whole class at a higher level or the same level that you want for your class, but then to follow up and do the hard work. And this is really hard work that takes time and tact, but to build those relationships one-on-one. So just be careful if you're coming in there with your, like, I want to be super strict. There's a cost to that. And I've, I've lived that cost and I, I regret that cost in terms of hurting relationships with students by overdoing it too early before you've gotten the full story on who that student was. So that's my, my other two cents I'd add though. I pretty much agree with you on this one. Okay. Two more. Two more. Let's do it. So your take Jim, wise or unwise students taking surveys in that first week, do you have like a get to know student survey that you give them in the first week of school? I don't have a, uh, I'm going to go unwise on the survey. I do a brief note card activity uh, on the first day where literally it's like on the note card, you put your name in the top right corner uh, in the top. I forget exactly what they are now, but in the top right corner, you just list like hobbies that you're, that you like uh, that you do outside of school on the top left corner, you list like three to five of your favorite foods. And on the bottom, I think I honestly, I think I saw this on TikTok. I don't know where. I wish I could credit the person, but teaching is, uh, you know, a profession where you just steal things ruthlessly. But um, yeah, so it's name in the middle, favorite foods on the top left corner, hobbies on the top right corner. And on the bottom of the note card, you write a sentence that you want me to know about you. So it's like, I have testing anxiety. I, the, one, one of the note cards from a student of mine that I've always remembered is I really don't like it when I'm cold called. Um, things like that. And it's just like, this is really what I want you to know about me as a student. And then on the back, I have them on the back of that note card. Um, excuse me. I have them just write an answer to a question that I think is like fundamental for the class. So in AP Lang, it's like, why? Why is it important to be a really, right? Like, what does that do for you in life? And in my AP seminar class, I think the question is like, why is it important to understand credible information? Like how, why is it important to be able to sift between credible and uh, not credible information? So 
to me, that's accomplishing a lot of the things that you get on the survey, but also it's a note. It's literally a note card and I, I study them and I get to know them and I quiz myself on them. Um, and that's super helpful. And I, I, I do try to avoid the monotony of like entering in, you know, like the same information, six periods a day. And the other, the other reason I say this is unwise is because I do, I use a Google form for like an exit ticket form. So if I, if I ever want like an exit ticket or them to do like a, a short piece of writing that I'm going to grade where their takeaways are from the class, actually the first step in that Google form is just like a numerical survey. Like, how are you doing? Um, how do you feel like you're doing an AP Lang? Is there anything outside of school? Like it's a, there's a continuous opportunity for students to communicate that with me, uh, how, like the type of information that we get on the surveys, because oftentimes I've done, I've definitely done the beginning of the year survey and I like barely looked at it and, and forgot it, you know, forgot a lot of the information within the first couple of weeks. So yeah, I've moved away from that. And instead I'm trying, you know, like I just try to provide more authentic, and most importantly, more ongoing opportunities for students to communicate with me. This is how I'm feeling. This is, I'm understanding it. I'm struggling in the class. Here's, you know, there's multiple times that's, that are structured that students have to do that through that exit ticket form that I use that uh, is actually more meaningful as the year goes on. So I'd say unwise, that's where I land on the surveys. So three time zones apart and pretty much a hundred percent lockstep in everything you said here. Uh, I give an index card, five question survey for the reason that you gave. These are the five things I really want to know and will hold myself accountable to knowing right away because I've given that 40 question survey to my hundred students or 150 students. That ends up being like what? Six. I mean, we're English teachers. You're never going to 6,000 questions. You're not going to read them. And yeah, it might take them more to fill it up. And it's like, oh, you know, they'll spend 20 minutes filling out all these answers on this survey. Mm-hmm. Now, if you do that and you read through all of them, more power to you. I know I don't have the time to do that. There's things I want to prioritize uh, elsewhere. That first couple weeks of school, what's the most important thing you need to know about students? Figure that out early. And, you know, for me, it's like, what's your core value? And I actually put that on their tracker throughout the year so I can hold myself accountable to honoring that value. Uh, and there's a few other questions uh, along those lines that we won't get into here for time's sake. But and then like you, I'm constantly checking in optionally. Hey, if there's the, here's a space where you can let me know how you're doing. Here's a space you can let me know if there's something that you need to be more supported. But that's built into the classroom. It doesn't have to be week one. So we're locked in. So if anyone disagrees with us, you're wrong. Uh, we'll just go with that. <laughs> well, I, you know, I know that you model your entire practice after what I say, so it's okay. Yeah. That that is my my entire career has been chasing after the mountain that is Jim, and that's why we're on this podcast so I can just right. sneak, learn more information, and grill him on here. So, I mean, you see I make this entire episode. I make this entire episode is a ruse, right? <laughs> so. I make it up as I go along for sure. So okay, so. I have a question that you're not expecting uh, to throw you a little bit for this last step because I thought about this a lot in the conversation with Sam and the points they made last episode. Uh, And I think this is interesting for both of us to think about, especially uh, as white men stepping into our spaces. Uh, 
how much do you introduce yourself to students the first day? Like, do you have a slide? Do you like talk about your, like, your personal life? Like, what is your approach in introducing your students? This isn't a wise or unwise. I just want to yeah. kind of open the floor to you on this question because I've been thinking about it, especially the privilege that it's easier for me to do that than others. Yeah, it's quick. It's quick. I mean, I do have a slide. I, I have, um, I do, I have a two slide thing where, I have just a, a set of pictures that's like, this is a picture of my wife and my family. And uh, I think, and I have pictures of like the Delta and of Brooklyn and of New Hampshire. And like, this is where I have lived. And this has been, you know, this has definitely just, cause that is interesting, right? Like I think when I'm, when I'm meeting someone for the first time in, in a learning or professional context, like I, I appreciate learning about what experiences have shaped the person who's leading the room. Right. So to a certain extent, I think that maybe not obligation is the right word, but students are interested and you should tell them a little bit about yourself and about who you are. But my introduction is very, very short because it's like, I, I, you know, I'm a big, I try to just decenter myself. Like I'm very careful to think about like, I guess authority that I have in the classroom and my role in the classroom and it, my role in the classroom ultimately is to create opportunities for people for students to grow and improve and like find their own skill and voice and that kind of stuff. So yeah, it's not about me is the point. And my introduction is very short. Um, I do talk about race because in AP Lang, we do, we read a lot of texts about race. And so I'll name, like I name my own personal experiences with race in that I don't have, like I in that I don't have experience like very significant experiences about race to think about on a day-to-day -day basis but um it's mostly in the context of of texts can I follow up respectfully on that last point uh you just yeah. said something that made me think when you said that you don't have significant experiences around race to think about on a day-to-day -day experience do you think that's just like something that's more invisible like the privilege of invisibility around race being white yeah. For, I mean, that's, yeah, for sure. That's what I mean. Like, I'm not, I, I don't have to think about, I don't, I, I don't have to think about race, right? Like I think it's an obligation and it's a duty that I have to push myself to think about, but you know, if you grow up in a, in a white, if you're socialized, like we were in a society that where whiteness is the default and you are white, then you are not conscious of your race inherently um whereas m the vast majority of my students are and so i think that's the entry point that i will name and talk about but it's really like i'm not pontificating or you know making grandiose claims about like what the ways in which people should think about race because it's really not my place to do that yeah and I, that's how i heard it i just wanted to like clarify in the same way that i'm sure you will many times ask me to clarify something i've said especially in the later part of a podcast so uh <laughs> i also i also want to add like 
I think my career arc in terms of introducing myself, uh, it's like I've been like it, I peaked maybe like year five or six of my career being like really into this vulnerability kick, uh, like Brene Brown style. Like it's very important to model vulnerability as a leader. And I still mm-hmm. believe that uh, very deeply. But I think I've also tried to hold how that vulnerability shows up differently as a white cisgendered man in the classroom and the privilege that comes with vulnerability that many people who don't identify the way you and I do, uh, their vulnerability doesn't have the same entry point into the classroom all the time in terms of how it's received. Uh, and I just try to like be mindful of that. And like when I'm introducing you know, my wife, my, my two sons, cause I'm definitely going to say like, Hey, I have a two month old and I'm not operating on normal sleep. And that's important for you to know about me <laughs> as your yeah. teacher. Uh, but like, there's a privilege beholden in that ability to be open and vulnerable with students without having your career on the line or having maybe being in some states being attacked by parents or not trusted as a teacher based on how you identify. And I just think that's something I'm trying to be mindful of while also being open and building those connections with students. Uh, so, but it sounds you were saying the exact same thing and I appreciate, I have the same picture slide with the other coastline uh, yeah. included. So I appreciate that. So yeah, I, well, it just it, it reminds me of a point I think that I made or that um, that Maffey made uh, who I interact with still online and he was on the podcast last year. But uh, this idea that, you know, being like a pretty being a person who's just like sort of automatically granted a really high degree of respect. Right. Being a male teacher, which is pretty unique in, in the first place. Uh, being white, having studied English, right? Like there's a ton of like, in AP Lang, we call it automatic ethos. The ability to just, or there's like a certain privilege of being able to choose more controversial texts and talk about more controversial things um, without being questioned. Um, And I've, since that conversation, I've really, I have really thought about that a lot as well and the other thing that i've been th- that i have recently been pushed on uh that i think was really helpful for me is just sort of like tone not toning down like anger right like uh it's not it's not it's not a very helpful move for me all the time especially teaching mostly black and brown kids to be outraged about like racism. Um, And I think it can come off as disingenuous at at best, if you're like, and just outright tone deaf at worst, if, if you're just like, I don't know, being angry on your students behalf of the racism that they experience on a day-to-day basis because you don't experience it. Um, and so I think those are, those are a couple things in relation to, you know, I guess identity and privilege and that kind of thing that do come into play for me quite a lot in the classroom. I appreciate that point. I think it's a good point for us to kind of circle towards the end of this podcast on, especially going into this year, uh, that I think if you're a white teacher listening to this, especially being mindful of the way you're entering into that space with your students, 
uh, particularly if you are teaching students of color. And also being aware that what might feel as like attacks and threats on you as a teacher in this current climate, which are very real in terms of like attacking your job in certain places based on laws being passed all over the country. The threats you're facing as a white teacher are nothing close to what is felt and has been faced for years by teachers of color uh, that I think it's important to be mindful of that privilege and not be fragile within it. Uh, would be something and not to say that it's easy to be a teacher in any space right now but that's something i'm trying to hold walking into this school year that i have a feeling as i'm sure you do is going to be quite a school year in terms of the culture outside the classroom trying to step and inflict itself upon the classroom itself and i think teachers are going to feel that in the time where teachers are being attacked and uh, unsupported in so many ways across the country uh, it makes me very grateful for the support i have and the building i'm in uh, but also makes me mindful of how I walk with a level of privilege and that I need to be aware of when I'm prioritizing my privilege over what's best for students and what are threats that many other teachers who identify differently have been facing for some time now. And it's our turn as white teachers to step up and uh, own the power that we have to uplift others and other voices. I'd add. So those are my final thoughts. Yeah. Wise or unwise? I like this game. It's a good game. You survived. I, I was going to, the topic that didn't get broached was the uh, diagnostics. And I think that's yeah. a whole different conversation about like what mood that brings into our classroom yeah. in terms of AP. But yeah. uh, I think we've hit our mark. It's late and you've got a big day tomorrow. And I want to honor that. Like more than anything, like, I'm excited for you. I'm, I'm very excited to hear how it goes. Uh, I, I hope that you have some bird truthers to really like convince you that I'm your satire to, yeah. is really just a desperate attempt at truth. Yeah. And, I, uh, I ordered, yeah. um, I ordered a shirt off Amazon with a, with a bird robot head and the shirt says, if it flies, it spies. And that's what I'm going to be wearing on Friday with the jeans. So I'm excited. If it flies, it spies with jeans episode title. Done. That's a good one. I think we found it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I, I good luck to you. Uh, I appreciate you enduring the grilling, and you are welcome to flip it back on me at some point during the year. All right, we'll do it. Good to okay. see you, Marcus. Okay, good luck. You too. The Broken Copier is an independent, listener-supported podcast for teachers. The show is written and hosted by Marcus Luther and myself, Jim Maris. I do editing and sound design for the show as well. Thanks to Casey Roberts, a blues musician born and raised in the Mississippi Delta, for writing and supplying original intro music. Thanks to Tom Chitari, a jazz musician, composer, and teacher currently based in Australia. Right now, you're listening to Woodstock from his album Garden, available now on Spotify. You can stream his music under the name Uncivilized. Fun fact about the album, it includes vignettes from a single called Rain Stomp, which was originally written to support Stacey Abrams' Fair Fight Action Network for Super Tuesday in 2020. Check out all his work at guitaruncivilized.com and uncivilizedtom.com, where you can sign up for guitar lessons on Zoom, just like I do. Links are in the show notes. Thanks very much to my sister, Courtney Malavik, for the graphic design you see on our social media and episode posts. Thanks to Brandon Piasecki for helping to get this project off the ground. 
The goal of the show is to connect with a passionate, diverse group of educators, bring helpful analysis and collaboration, and celebrate everyone doing the hard work in the classroom. We hope to connect and direct time, resources, and energy towards concrete efforts that will improve student outcomes, especially in marginalized and underserved communities. We are not the only ones doing this. We want to honor and say thank you to the many educators out there, past, present, and future, who already understand their classroom practice through a lens of social justice and change. We'd love to connect with you, hear about what you're doing, and give you a space to share your work. If you want to support the show, you can help us grow and connect for free. Reach out on social media at The Broken Copier, text an episode link to your friends in education, or even share an episode to your own social media feeds. You can email thoughts, feedback, and ideas to thebrokencopier at substack.com. You can also read other essays and thoughts on teaching and learning at thebrokencopier.substack.com, where we publish all of our episodes available wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.